I mean, encourage you to open your Bible if you would. If you'd open your Bible to the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, we have it printed for you in your insert. Uh, very thankful to look at this particular text with you. Uh, it's got a couple of, uh, there'll be a chapter upcoming that sounds eerily similar to this. So, so this might be something that we really need to understand what it was like for David to be presented with what he's presented with here. And so what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to read it in sections. I'm going to kind of read it throughout this, the sermon. But let me ask you, in light of what I just asked the kids, adult Christian, do you take shortcuts in life? Or maybe, maybe, maybe your place of employment would give testament to the fact that that is not you. You do not take shortcuts. You're very thorough. You're unwilling to take shortcuts. Maybe that means you are frustrated with others who take them. But I want you to think with me about shortcuts. Let's think of some real situations um, where a shortcut would be nice. Think of, go ahead, don't worry about it, guys. Don't worry about it. I don't need water. I'm good. Um, think with me. So yesterday I was at a track meet. And I want, you to, I want you to imagine with me athletes wanting to shortcut through the work that's required to be excellent in their craft, whatever it might be, right? You don't just become a fast miler. Some kid ran 417 yesterday. It's pretty fast for a high school kid. Like that's nuclear fast for a high school kid. Of course, Kim Chobi ran about that pace for 26 miles. Fastest runner in the world. You don't shortcut your way to that kind of excellence, whether it's one mile or 26, correct? Let's think of other things. Maybe in your life you think of, gosh, financial strain, occupational, um, maybe burden. How do we shortcut the pathway from maybe, maybe a, a negative net monthly budget to something better? Maybe it's play the lottery. I wouldn't recommend that. It's not my point. But isn't that a shortcut? Wouldn't that be easier? Or, or how about if I could just be seen to be what I am, which I would make a great manager or a director, if I could just shortcut past the experience required and be seen for what I bring to the table, then we'd have a different financial outlay as a family, whatever the case may be, right? Shortcuts are a real thing we think through. I mentioned it with the kids. How about a relational conflict? If I could just shortcut the path of reconciliation, if I could shortcut the, the hard conversations where face-to-face -face dialogue is necessary and a humble heart says, I want to take the log out of my own eye and I want to acknowledge that I'm probably culpable in this and I also want to share with that person the way that their sin has affected me. And then we have to acknowledge where trust has been broken and then we have to think through the fact that trust doesn't get rebuilt quickly. And so as, as much as we may want to, can we shortcut all that? And just get where we ought to be so we experience a blessing of a kingdom of reconciliation? No, you can't shortcut that. So just enter into the realm of shortcuts with me. I think it'll help us as we read this task. We're pretty confident that shortcuts would make the hard things easier. Even a young child has just announced that to us. Can we just shortcut the bad things? When I was at Carson Newman College, I remember the, how stressed we were the whole summer about the fitness test on day one of our fall soccer camp. We had to run a certain pace under a certain time, two miles around a track. Well, here's the, here's the bad news. The bad news is it's the first thing, and if you didn't pass it, 
you had to get up and try the fitness test every single day for the next two weeks. But if you passed it on the first day, you could sleep in. Not bad. That's good news. The, the bad news was very few people could pass it because the standard was just ridiculously high. So we ran it at 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe 5.30, I don't remember. It was in the dark. So most of us that passed it at least once in our four years knew that the co- I'm not recommending this. This is, this is disobedience to God, but we could shortcut the backside of the track in the dark in the morning because they wouldn't turn the lights on. And as long as you didn't fall into the steeplechase pit, very dangerous, the light, you could just shave enough on each lap to pass the fitness test. We, we disobey God, we dishonor relationships, but the shortcut is a real thing, isn't it? So I just want you to enter into the shortcut and think with me about when we read about David right here, we're going to read about the Lord's anointed who is unwilling to take a shortcut to serve God in the way that God has called him as the anointed. And that's what this text is ultimately going to show us. And we know that David forecasts Jesus. And so we read already in the service that when Satan tempted Jesus, that's ultimately one way to summarize the temptation. Hey, Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me, the prince of this world, I'll give you everything. Shortcut the path the Father has sent you to bear, and I'll give you everything. Well, Psalm chapter 2 tells us what Jesus knew. The Lord said to me, you're my son. I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Jesus is going to be the one whom every knee bows to. And he's unwilling before his public ministry starts to take a shortcut to violate God's holy law. Shortcuts are a real longing in the wilderness. They're a real longing in the wilderness. And I think it's the first temptation our Lord faced in the wilderness. So let me ask you to stand. We're going to read about David in the wilderness. So stand with me. And I'm just going to read the first seven verses. And we'll read throughout this morning. And this is God's word where we see this picture of his anointed When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. He came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed." And so David persuaded his men with with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of God. God. Let me pray. Father, would you help us just to see and savor the Christ, our Lord Christ, that we are presented with this typological picture of in this passage. And would we see our need for no shortcuts in your kingdom that we would trust you with your holding of every one of our circumstance and you're navigating your kingdom to its full for your glory and for the good of those who rest in the work of your anointed. Help us to see that today. 
Help it to hold us in our culture, in our time, in our caves, among our rocks, in our wilderness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So David's in a different wilderness now. He's in the wilderness of En Gedi. There's craggy hills. They overlook the Dead Sea. There's, this is it's quite a great place for him to find refuge. There's water supply. There's rocks. There's sheepfolds. There's caves. Now, if we go back to last Lord's Day, you might remember we were looking in the previous chapter, and at the very end of 23, Saul is so close to catching David, right? So he's on one side of a mountain, and David is, and Saul's men on the other side, and we think that the, the demise is near, and all of a sudden, Saul gets word that the Philistines have attacked his people. So he gets called away. He goes, he puts out a fire, and now we start in the very first verse of our chapter that straight away, the moment the threat is gone, his real passion consumes him again, and he gets 3,000 chosen warriors to go back on the hunt for David. Just factor a little math here. That's a five-to-one advantage over David and his 600 unchosen men. All right, so Saul has choice warriors, 3,000. David has 600 vagabonds, hurting, wounded, alone individuals. And we come to verse 3, and this is a great verse. It's a great verse for all of us, but especially teenage boys. Um, he came to the sheepfolds, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. I read this week that uh, only young boys read books and wonder, when do the heroes and bad guys go to the bathroom? Here you have it. This is for you. Saul goes in. He sits on his royal throne or he takes a nap. There's different ways to read this. And hidden in the back of this cave are all 600 angry, hurting, robbed, wounded, leftover previous servants of the wicked king. Factor this with me. And so deep in the darkness, you can just hear the whispers. And, and some of the men whisper in David's ear, David, here's the day the Lord said he would deliver Saul into your hands so you could do whatever your hand wanted. And just think with me what these men were waiting on. What did they think they were following David for? I wonder how many in the cave thought they're following David for the moment of vengeance against the one who had taken so much from them. Here's the problem. David never had God say that to him that we can find anywhere in the narrative, certainly not in this book. God never said that to David. Now, back in chapter 23, you know what God said, did say to David? Chapter 23, verse 4, God did say, I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. When he said, should I go to the city of Keilah? And rescue them. I will deliver your enemy into your hands so you can go. But nowhere did God say to David, I'll give you my current anointed Saul who is still on the throne according to my providential plan. That's not something David has heard. So if I summarize, here's what the men are saying to David. David, we want you to take a shortcut. Here's the reality of the wilderness. We want real shortcuts. And we see David wrestle with this. He's conflicted. He rises. He, he goes forward and he stealthily moves and, and, and he gets his knife out. Just imagine the sharpness of the blade. Pretty sharp, huh? It's a free heel blade. And he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Do you think he knew the significance of this? 
Do you think David realized the symbolism of what he was doing? Let me help you remember. Just a few chapters ago, in chapter 20, verse 15, Jonathan said to David, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. Whose house is Jonathan's house? Saul's house. As the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. That's what Jonathan has said. But let's go back even further, back to chapter 15. When Saul is rejected by God, Samuel the prophet's the one who gives the word of rejection to Saul. And as Samuel turns to walk away, Saul reaches out and he grabs his robe and it tears. And Samuel turns to Saul and said, the Lord has just the same torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And now the better neighbor is standing there with a section of the torn robe, a cut off part of the robe of Saul the king in his hand. The future king has part of the robe of the current king. So the question is, does David see this symbolic act of authority transfer? Well, one commentator says, actually, we know he does because he actually considers that what he's just done is a symbolic declaration of revolt. His heart pricks him. He's struck by it. We see this. And he goes back to his men. And he says, the Lord forbid I should do this thing that I should in any way put my hand out against the Lord's anointed, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. It's emphatic in the text. So we have to understand the importance of this anointing of the Lord. I want you to understand it means to be set apart. Again, let me read to you one commentator's pretty precise definition. The anointing is a specific bond established in relation to the Lord in separation from other men and women in general. To touch, defile, attack the Lord's anointed one is to approach the Lord. And to seek to remove the Lord from his rightful place. It's pretty interesting. And so basically what David, when he talks with his men in the cave, he's almost having that college debate about the will of the Lord for David. I say college debate because I remember sitting around trying to discern, is this God's providence or is this temptation? Is he, you know, what's going on here? And they're having a debate about what David should do. And I think the only thing that gives us an answer as to whether this is a temptation or it's the Lord's providence is this understanding of the sanctity of the Lord's anointed. Which means David knows that though the Lord providentially put Saul in the cave, his desire to go and extend his hand against the Lord anointed, that's a temptation that he must not fall prey to. And he's very convicted about this. If you read in verse 7, the language in Hebrew is really insightful. We read that David persuades his men that he must not do this. And then he says, it says he won't allow his men to attack Saul. He stays their hand. But in the Hebrew, the word persuade is the word to wound. It's the same word as in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. So literally what we have here in verse 7 is David tore apart his men with his words when he told them they couldn't touch Saul. He's very convicted about this. He will not take shortcuts. He will wait. We have different playlists in our families, Spotify, and we'll listen. And Pete the other day was saying, hey, can we listen to the oldies station? 
And I'm like, why would you want to listen to oldies music? I didn't know you liked oldies music. So then we start playing the oldies music, and it was a Mumford and Son song. Um, I was like, this is the oldies station. That's not very long ago. Okay, the oldies station. But there is that Mumford and Son's song, I will wait. I will wait for you. I will wait. I recall listening to that song when we were saying, Lord, do you want to call our family to... Christ Community Church in Johnson City. Like, we can't make these things happen, but I will wait. I will wait. Here's what is going on in the heart of David. He's, he's torn apart to say, I almost didn't wait. And I must wait. No shortcuts. No shortcuts. All right. You can stay seated, but let me read verse 8 to 15. Where do things go from here? Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? Uh, After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So, so David follows Saul out of the cave. Picture this, the amount of risk for David to do this. There are 600 of his men hemmed in the cave behind him, 3,000 of Saul's choice warriors, and David walks out and stands and speaks. The reason we should see this as risk is because back in chapter 23, do you remember how excited Saul got when he heard that David was at the city of Keilah? And what Saul said was, he went to a city with bars and gates. He's totally hemmed in. And Saul realized that's his advantage. Well, now David walks out and behind him, completely hemmed in, are all of his men. And yet look how calm he is. Look how much faith David has. So let's just walk through this. First thing to notice, he holds a humble posture before Saul. It's pretty important. The Antichrist Saul. The wicked Wicked King Saul, David, bows to the ground and pays him honor, for the Lord has put Saul in a position of honor. The second thing we see David do is he's not just calm in his demeanor towards Saul, he actually is strong in his confidence of his innocence before Saul. Right? He holds his position. Why do you listen to those who say that I'm lying and wait for you, that I'm against you? Today, the Lord gave you into my hand. They told me to kill you. Who are they? Those like Abiathar, who watched you murder and slaughter his whole village. Those who want vengeance told me to execute it. But I stayed their hand. This is fascinating. David holds his position of innocence, but David also instructs Saul in the providence of God. 
The Lord put you in my hand, but the Lord has also restrained my actions. The third thing I notice, he reminds Saul of his position before God. Verse 10, David says, I told them that I'm not going to put my hand against the Lord's anointed. See, my father, I have your robe in my hand. I've not sinned, though you hunt me. In other words, I think he's, he's holding out the robe of Saul and he's saying, you're still the Lord's anointed. That's why this is all I have of you. Because he's still choosing to position you as you've been called to be. What a powerful thing that David reminds Saul of his position before God. And then we see David holds this dependent posture on God. We see his theology and his worldview. Don't miss the very powerful sentences there toward what I, the end of what I read. He says, the Lord will judge between me and you. The Lord's going to be the one to grant sentence to the guilty or to the innocent. This is David's security. It's fascinating. He, he's not resting in a prospective change of heart for Saul, is he? That's not giving David any comfort. In fact, he even says, from wicked, wickedness comes more wickedness. I'm not banking on Saul having a turn of heart. What comforts David is he says, the Lord's going to avenge the wickedness and the sin that me and my men have known. It's the Lord's to avenge. Basically, David is quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's also quoted in, Jude, in Romans 12, 19. But I think the, the tendency we, we have is to sanitize the word of God more than we should. So I want you to just think with me about this thought that vengeance is the Lord, Lord's. I want you to think about the rage. One commentator says, leaving judgment in God's hands and com committing vengeance to God is no passive or amenic affair. David is torqued. Think with me of the Psalms of vengeance, the imprecatory Psalms that we read from the lips of David. I was reading Psalm 58 this morning where David in a Psalm says, Lord, I want you to break their teeth. Break the teeth of your enemy. Make them vanish like water. He says, like snails, just dissolve into slime. Do that to the enemy of your people. And I know many who struggle with parts of the Bible. How, how could we ever sing this when we've sang some of the Psalms? Or because there's nothing but passion in the heart of one who's longing for the Lord to bring vengeance. This is, this is very real. Don't sanitize it. David's living out Hebrews 10, 29. I know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, it's the Lord who will judge his people. And Hebrews 10 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. So David essentially says, this is why I don't need to battle Saul. I'm like a flea. I'm like a dead dog. All I have to do is plead my case to the God who brings vengeance against his enemies. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Question, do you think Saul has any fear right now? Let's read on. Last part of the chapter, verse 16 and following. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. You've declared this day 
how you've dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's quite a surprise, isn't it? And this crushing realization by Saul that the voice speaking to him was David, his son-in-law. And, and, and I think it's a surprise to us as readers that he speaks the truth the way he does. He says, you're more righteous than I am. You repaid me good, even though I repaid you evil. The Lord put me in your hand. You didn't kill me. Who lets their enemy go away safe? He says, the Lord will reward you. And then he says, I know that you will be king. I know that the kingdom of Israel is in your hands. And then a last request. When you come into your throne, please have mercy on my family. Swear to me, David, you will be merciful. And so David covenants an oath with him. And then Saul just takes his men home. And if you're reading this, maybe you did this week, it's sort of like, well, that was odd. What do we do with this? This hard, conflicted, evil man, he speaks some truth here. He shows a response here. And so here's how I've put it in your bulletin. What we see in Saul here is the randomness of disbelief. He's reactionary to his circumstances. That's what happens with Saul. He has this honest reaction. Is that my son? And then he weeps. Honestly, he's shocked. Two things I think that he is shocked about. First, he realized he was this close to death. Second, he realizes his narrative has been wrong the whole time. I'm going to say that again for our culture and for our day. People whom you work with, whom you know, who come confronted with the reality that I am this close to death. And when I realize I'm this close to death, I realize my narrative has been wrong. If my narrative has been consume what I can while I have life, because that's the goal. Confronted with death, that narrative doesn't matter. And I could name any number of things. But I think that's what's going on in the heart of Saul. And so he makes this declaration. You are more righteous than I am. In other words, he knows that as the Lord's king, he was supposed to be righteous. And he sees in David the better one. And then he makes this declaration that even his own troops here, you are the future king. Anybody here curious with me if those that are following Saul are starting to wish that David was their king? Just how many people, when they heard Saul say this, are like, make it happen already. Saul wants David to go on record that when he is king, he will not liquidate his household. And we've already looked at, does that promise not get fully acted upon by David? Remember Mephibosheth? Saul's son with the twisted up legs. David's going to treat him like his own son and bring him into his household. So David's going to honor this. Jonathan's already made the same covenant. But let's notice what's missing in Saul's reaction here. There's no repentance at all. 
There's no genuine repentance. He, he is a man who's just wickedly slaughtered a village of Israel. His conscience does not show any movement toward asking the Lord to be merciful to him. This is very different than when King David is going to sin in the future. Psalm 51, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. Or Psalm 32, when David says, my sin weighs me down so badly, my bones break. Would you please receive me and cover my sin? I confess all my transgressions to you, Lord. There's nothing like that from Saul here. So here's what we have when we add it all up. We have this random reactionary response where Saul grieves, but not really. He speaks truth, but he doesn't believe it. So here's what I want you to understand with me. And I think this will apply to to our world. A life of self-centered, self-preserving, God-rejecting, personal kingdom-making reality is completely unstable and will actually react to every single circumstance that will cause such a personal kingdom to be threatened. Which is why Saul makes no sense to us. Which is why people who don't believe in anything suddenly latch on to believe in something and then they reject it and believe in something and reject it and believe in something. And those who love and know them say, I can't make sense of you. That's why we can't make sense of Saul. His life's not tethered to the kingdom of God, a a more righteous and true and a bigger picture that's larger than his personal survival and his personal glory in the moment. So therefore, every circumstance, whether it's one of power or one of threat, causes him to react with instability. That's what we see here. People of God, this is not the response of a Christian. This is not the response of those who follow after the Lord's Christ because a spirit-filled, converted, heart-changed follower of the Lord's Messiah doesn't have self in the middle. That's what we believe in the gospel. We have God living inside of us, Christ in us, the hope of glory of something totally different. So I heard it said this way, if you put your circumstances between you and the Lord's narrative and his glory, you begin to not really notice the Lord. If you put the Lord and his glory and his story between you and your circumstances, you'll start to not notice your circumstances. Discipleship is us helping one another interpret our life according to the authority of God's story. And that's what we see David do. Saul is the exact opposite in instability. And so last point for you. What what does David have here? He has this release of belief. He has this refreshing sovereignty grid. David, he's promised to keep all these hurting people safe. They've been inflicted by Saul. And even in the moment then when he can put their pain to rest and establish something better, he refuses to take a shortcut to to release himself from his circumstantial pain. He will not be the one who executes justice. Divine justice and divine vengeance are the Lord's to give. And so he has this faith in God orchestrating his kingdom. And that brings David relief and release. So he doesn't have to try to relieve things himself. Think about that question at the beginning. Do you take shortcuts? Let's think of some illicit shortcuts that don't work. Okay, these are, these are, these are shortcutting us to something that's not even righteous. All right, pretty easy ones to think about. Control is a shortcut. It's a mirage. Those who seek to control the people around them and the environment around them, it's not 
kingdom living if you're, you can't. You can't. Or checking out and just watching TV and just scrolling through social media. It's a shortcut to something that's not actually rest. It will not give you the relaxation and the the rest that you think it might. I'm just going to check out. Or self-medicating with alcohol or a pill or an illicit relationship or pornography. It's destructive and it's not real good. It's not real pleasure. So some things we shortcut toward aren't even the real thing. But what about things that are spiritual like righteousness? Isn't much of the New Testament Paul the Apostle saying the Pharisees The Judaizers, the legalists, they've used the law to try to shortcut an experience of righteousness. And all they've done is dismissed their need for Jesus and Jesus alone. They've added something to the gospel. They've added circumcision or whatever the case, because they were trying to shortcut the path to have this perfect people of God with a righteousness that's set apart. And so that doesn't work. Or do, or do we not know people that have shortcutted their pathway to obedience by just saying, I just won't be involved in community. I'll just watch church on TV now. It's not Christian community. It's not even worship with God's people. But then there's people that come every week and have said, I don't need to be involved in the relationships of others. I just want to come and attend. I just want to come. I'm not going to serve anybody. And I'm not going to enter in and do evangelism and discipleship and, and, and seek to see God's kingdom come to earth. I'm just going to worship and then kind of do things my own way, by myself. That's a shortcut. That's a shortcut to sanctification. There's less repentance and faith and reconciliation experienced when that, those shortcuts are taken. And I feel like I go on and on. But understand with me, the good news of the gospel is that in the kingdom of God, there are no shortcuts. None. God is sovereign. And what he has ordained is for his children who follow after his anointed to walk through the wilderness of suffering and sin and of death and of pain and through that process to still follow after the Lord's anointed and say, I'm with him. And so when Jesus came and he was the greater David, did he not, from the beginning of his ministry, refuse to take any shortcuts? It's a good thing he did because when Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, didn't he undergo all of them and and know the same temptations that we know? And even when he came to the point of his own cross, didn't he suffer but trust the Father's hand? So much so that in the garden there when Peter whips out his sword and says, I will fight for justice and righteousness, Jesus says, Peter... I understand why you would want to do that, but put it away. Because there's no shortcuts to sin being paid for. There's no shortcuts in God's kingdom at all. Maybe you've heard it said this way. There surely has to be plan B that I have to go through these circumstances of suffering. You know what I think a Christian worldview held out to us in Scripture is? There's only plan A for those who are God's in Christ. There's no plan B. And we just got to get back to plan A and remember what, no. Plan A is through the journey of God ordaining all our circumstances, we learn to obey and to repent and believe the gospel. We face circumstances outside of our control and what are we called to do? 
be righteous in those circumstances and obey God's law. And we see we fail to meet it. We repent and believe the gospel. We follow after the Lord's Christ. And where are we supposed to learn such obedience? There's no shortcut to that, is there? And so we think of Ephesians 1, where the Bible tells us very clearly that God has set a plan from eternity that in the fullness of time, he will unite all things to himself. But you know what Ephesians 1 also says? It's not just this eternal plan that doesn't touch our circumstances. Actually, every circumstance has been predestined according to him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, that's what David believed. That's what David knew. God's kingdom is God's kingdom, not mine. That means God's path is God's path, not mine. That means God's timing is God's timing, not mine. That means God's vengeance is God's vengeance, not mine. And the challenge for me and for you is I would love to be in a kingdom where the Lord's Messiah comes a little quicker. Isn't that how the Bible ends? Come quickly, Jesus, but still in your perfect time. Why does it have to include so much waiting and hurting? Why so much death and suffering? Why is that the way? Why do we need to do a seminar on addictions? Because in the way of God's kingdom, there's no shortcuts. And God will fully bring justice and righteousness and mercy to those who turn to him. I want to read Philippians 2 as I close up. Jesus went the long way, people of God. Didn't he? He went all the way through the injustice of civil and religious leaders. He went all the way through the pain and suffering of a world of sin so that he would know and bear its full cost. He went all the way through the sacrificial death of bearing his father's wrath to bear all of what our sins deserve. He went through his father's absence and he knew it right before he died. Why are you forsaking me? Because those who are unholy don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. But then he went all the way through resurrection. And he went all the way through ascension. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. And he's going to come all the way through to bring righteousness to earth. And that sure is, by all standards, a path that had no shortcuts. And it will come to bear in its full in perfect time. So hear this Philippians 2 reading as I close in prayer. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He was humiliated. He didn't shortcut it. To the point of becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord's Christ. Jesus is the greater David to the glory of God the Father. That's hinted at in this chapter, by the way. Doesn't Saul declare that David's the real king? Isn't that how God's going to orchestrate all history to end and eternity to come to earth is even the enemies of Jesus are going to say, you're the king. Thanks be to God for his gospel. Let's pray. Father, just ask that as we take the Lord's Supper now, as we stand and we proclaim by our, our partaking, 
would we be those who proclaim to you that everything you've sovereignly brought us through that's brought us to the place of repenting of our sin and crying out to you to be our rescuer is your plan. And it's a perfect plan and your timing is perfect. And we're thankful there's no shortcuts. So would you help us to not try to shortcut repentance and faith through trial and seeing our own sin and rebellion against your law or, or pain and anguish that requires resurrection to be true. Whenever we see it and we wish we could skip the bad stuff, would you help us to see and savor the Savior all the more that in your perfect plan you are bringing out a rescue that we will one day know includes the vengeance against all wickedness and the restoration and the new creation of perfect righteous just justice. And that as we walk in a world experiencing the humiliation of sin's marks, just as Jesus did, we anticipate exaltation. Exaltation that comes by means of the path of humility. Thank you that there's no shortcuts for that. Do your work in, in the hearts of your people that we would trust you and we will wait and we will follow after your anointed. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.